The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So, so this week was my birthday weekend. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. I, I couldn't help but notice I didn't get very many cards from the congregation, so teasing, teasing. I turned 48 last week, which is weird to be that old, but uh, my, my wife and I, she, she knows me well, and so she knows my love language is the outdoors, and so for my birthday, we decided just to go on a little two-day adventure, and it was great. We have this little tent that goes on top of our Subaru, and we just went up kind of near Crater and just drove around in the mountains and tried to find these little teeny goat path roads we could get on, and we drove around on mostly ATV trails in our Subaru, which was really fun. And we found ourselves on top of these ridge lines, and, and, and the second place we parked, where we are, we are on this ATV trail, and we drove up on this ridge line, and it was so, I had to stack a bunch of rocks so my vehicle would be somewhat level, so my, well, I wouldn't roll out of my, my roof nest. And, and Becky's getting all set up in the morning, and, and, and I parked the vehicle, so it like went into us down, and we didn't want our, our head downhill, so, so kind of where the back of the vehicle is, the hatchback, we had to have our heads up. And my wife was really bothered by this. I'm like, why are you so worried about our heads being on this end of the tent instead of that end of the tent? She's like, well, because someone could stab me in the head there easy. They can't reach over the hood of the car. I'm like, oh, okay, and I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. We're on the top of a mountain. But, but it was a blast. And, and those of you who've been married for any length of time, you know that sometimes the most volatile of interactions in marriage can happen over disagreements on navigation. And so I know I'm very smart. Like I knew we couldn't just wing it because my need for control, I just would not have been good. But thank goodness on my phone, I have what's called Onyx. Do you guys have Onyx, that app? It's a backpacking app. It's like a GPS app. You put it on your phone. It tells you where trails are, ATV roads, uh, logging roads. It's wonderful. And so I downloaded all the maps of all the places we were going to go. And as Becky and I were driving, exploring these beautiful roads and picking huckleberries and stopping to take in views and and driving over boulder fields, um, I wasn't stressed because all the time that we were doing this thing, engaging the world around us and engaging with one another, I had this GPS connection. And so I knew the whole entire time where we were and where we were going. I was never stressed out about any of that. And in fact, it was this vertical connection with the satellite that let me know where I was that actually freed me up to enjoy the world around me and enjoy relationship with my wife as we went on this wonderful adventure together. I was confident because this vertical connection was in place, I could then enjoy the connection uh, uh, of the horizontal world around me. This vertical and horizontal relationship is really a picture we see in Scripture. And it's the picture of the Christian life. Do you remember in Mark, no, Matthew 22, when Jesus was asked by a religious lawyer, like, what is the greatest commandment? You guys know this, the great commandment. Jesus said, well, here's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and commandments hang on these, he says. And so do you notice the order of that? uh, You've heard me talk about this before, and I'm sure you've heard lots of teaching on this. The, The order of the great commandment is vertically align your heart with God. Be a worshiper of God. Love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when your vertical relationship with God is in order, when you are in a posture of worship, then the horizontal, loving your neighbor as yourself, becomes an outflow of the vertical relationship with God. It's like an outflow of worship. This vertical and horizontal nature of the Christian life, it's not just in the great commandment either. In fact, as I unpack our text today, I'm going to make the argument that true faith leads to true living. Those are actually Kathy Johnston's words, not mine. She shared that with me on our our study on Tuesday. True faith, which is the vertical relationship with God, 
leads to true life, which is the horizontal relationship with the world and with others. So you're going to hear me say again and again today that true faith leads to true living. In other words, what we think about God has everything to do with our relationship with others and with the world around us. I mean, it's not just found in our text or in the Great Commission. Think about the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, the first four commandments are intensely vertical and theological. The first four commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or worship an idol. The third commandment is uh, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. The fourth commandment is you should remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. These are intensely vertical and theological commandments. And then the next six are intensely horizontal and ethical. Honor your father and mother. Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. And so we see that this, the primary in all of these equations is the vertical. It's the worship. Worship is primary. It's vital. I read this week because a proper grasp of God will guide our footsteps in the world. Now, all that sets us up for our passage today. Do you remember how chapter 12 ended last week? Look with me real quick at chapter 12. Look at the last two verses of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, sort of the therefore summation of chapter 12. Here's what the author says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now in our text today, as we get into the particularities of verse chapter 13, we're going to see, I'm sorry, this thing is driving me crazy. We're going to see that after this intensely vertical nature of chapter 12, we're going to see this intensely horizontal exhortation of chapter 13. In fact, there's multiple exhortations that, that are kind of viewed through the lens of horizontal. True faith leads to true living. So, that's our setup. Let's read chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We'll stop there. And really, the, the place where we chose to divide this chapter, it's, it's, it's a difficult place. It's, this chapter is difficult to know where to divide, and we didn't feel like we wanted to teach all of chapter 13 in one section, so we, we stopped right there at the end of verse 9. Now, we've got to remind ourselves of sort of the, the layout of the book of Hebrews. Remember chapters 1 through 9 and a half, like midway through chapter 10, it was all doctrine. 
The author of Hebrews was writing to a group of believers who were on the verge of giving up. They had diminished their vision of Jesus and they were looking at other things. And so for nine and a half chapters, the author holds up Jesus. He is greater, truer, better. He holds up Jesus, the sufficiency of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. So his audience will see him as he actually is. The, 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 the cares and concerns and the difficulties of this world had caused their eyes to fall away from Jesus. And for nine and a half chapters, he draws the eyes of the worshipers up to Jesus to see how worship-worthy he really is. And then halfway through chapter 10, through the end of the chapter, the last three and a half chapters of the book, it's, it's duty. In light of the doctrine, now we have the duty of the Christian. In light of this consuming fire that is God, we now see the Christian uh, responsibility or the Christian response as we worship the living God. That's the, 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 the vertical and the horizontal nature of the chapter even, or of the book. Nine and a half chapters gives us this vertical orientation of, of who Jesus is. In fact, we read in the very first line that he has ascended and he's sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then here in the last three and a half chapters, he's just giving us exhortations and instruction on how to live in this world as worshipers. And as I read chapter 13, and as you read ahead, you'll read that there's just a lot. It's like every verse feels like a different a command or exhortation or a different imperative. Like, do this, do this, do this, do this. And my first response was, is this like the leftovers of the letter? I mean, did the author of Hebrews sit down and have this idea of this letter he was going to write? And he, for, for 12 chapters, laid out all of his arguments Got to the end of chapter 12, worship with reverence and awe. Our God is a consuming fire. Oh, that's so good. But I got all these extra parts here. What am I supposed to do with all these extra parts? So I'm just going to just throw them out at the wall in the last chapter. That's honestly how I initially read it, because that's kind of how my mind works. But as I studied this, I'm like, no, 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 no. This is very intentional here, what the author has done. You know, as we go through the kind of the, 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 the structure of the book, the, the last three and a half chapters speak of duty, but here... In, in chapter 13, these are very specific exhortations. And as we said previously, most scholars believe the author of the letter of Hebrews was actually the pastor of the church that he was writing to. And this was a pastor who knew the heartbeat of his people. And as he's writing this letter, he's, he's thinking of specific ways that he wants to contextualize the gospel in the lives of his people. So these are very, very thoughtful, very specifically chosen exhortations that, that rest on the foundation of the first 12 chapters that he has taught. And his last encouragement before he gets into these, these specific exhortations is this vertical call. Chapter 12, again, verse 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the way of the worshiper. As he begins to give exhortations on how we live our lives as followers of Christ, he is laying out the way of the worshiper. This is how we are to walk as men and women who have a vertically oriented posture before God. This is the way of the worshiper in the world in which we live. This is what he's giving us today. In other words, the one who clings with gratitude to the unshakable kingdom of Christ, the one who offer, is the one who offers acceptable worship to God. And this person, this person who, who clings to the unshakable kingdom, this person who offers acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe, this person will live in such a way that God is glorified. And what does that way look like? Well, verses 1 through 9 give us a sampling of what a God-glorifying, horizontal engagement with the world around us looks like. 
So let's take a few minutes to work through these, these nine chapters, these nine verses. Again, reminding ourselves all along the way that true faith leads to true living. The author is helping us understand, in light of who he is, how ought we now live. So look with me again at verse 1. The worshiper's relationship with others. We see the, the, the first three verses of chapter 13 speak to the sort of the interpersonal or the external uh, posture of the worshiper's heart, the relationship he or she has with others. And so the first thing I want you to write down based on verse 1 is love for one another. As we look at the worshiper's relationship with others, we see this call in verse 1 for a love for one another. And so the one who clings with gratitude to the unshakable kingdom of Christ, the one who offers acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe, this vertical posture, that person will necessarily love others. He says in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. This word is the Greek word Philadelphia. That city in Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, it's this picture of loving of brothers and sisters. It's familial love. It's composed of two root words. Phileo, which means tender affection, and Adelphos, which means brother or near kinsman. Literally, that word Adelphos, it means from the same womb. And so this is a really beautiful picture of familial love, of brotherly love. It's a picture of the nature of the relationship that exists between brothers and sisters in Christ. We are from the same womb. We have been born again in Christ Jesus. We've been born into a new family. We have the right to be called sons and daughters of God because of what he's done for us in and through his son, Jesus. And there is to be great love within the family of God. The, brother, the author says, let brotherly love continue. Which means that this wasn't like a brand new commandment for these people. They had existed within a community that contained love. As, as their pastor, he had seen expressions of love. And he says, continue in that. It's beautiful. God's glorified in that. If you go back to chapter 10, or chapter 6, verse 10, the author says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So these were a people who knew how to love. And he's encouraging them, don't stop doing that. Continue in that brotherly love. And so as we think about what does a true life look like? If true faith, vertical, is in this, this God, if we worship him in reverence and awe, this true life, well, a true life and true living is one that loves others. What a great way to measure how I'm doing in my walk with the Lord. Am I loving other people? In fact, if you, if you look at the scriptures, the one distinguishing marker that Jesus says the world will be able to see in his people this new humanity that Jesus brings, the one thing that sets apart this new humanity from the rest of the world is love for others. John 13, 35, by this Jesus says, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Paul says in Romans 12, love one another with brotherly affection. He writes to the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And so the way of the worshiper, the way of the worshiper is to love one another. True faith 
leads to true living. In other words, what we think about God is going to manifest in our relationship with others. If this is not, if I'm not being filled here, if I'm not experiencing the fullness of God's love, if my need to be loved is not being satisfied in and through him, I'm going to enter into my horizontal relationships with an agenda. I'm going to have an axe to grind. I'm going to be looking to the people around me to meet a need in me. If he's not meeting my needs vertically first, I'm going to begin using the relationships in my life to meet needs. And people will become a means to my own personal end. This is why the vertical nature of worship is so vital for marriage to be healthy, for families to be healthy, for churches to be worshipers primarily, and then we live horizontally in the world after we are worshipers who have are, who are been adopted into the family of God. And so the first thing we see is that the way of the worshiper is to love one another. Secondly, in verse 2, the way of the worshiper, we see, we see the worshiper is to show hospitality to strangers. We're to show hospitality with the stranger, the one who clings with gratitude to the unshakable kingdom of Christ, the one who, who offers acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe. That person necessarily will show hospitality to strangers as an outflow of that vertical relationship with God. Look at verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. These strangers could be both believing strangers, people who are in the family of God, you just don't have a relationship with them, and they could be unbelieving strangers as well. I think about that 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 long section in the 25th chapter of Matthew where, where Jesus is talking about final judgment. And he's talking about the righteous and the unrighteous, the goats and the sheep. And there's this conversation in, beginning in verse 37 of Matthew 25 where the righteous say to, to the Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And, and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And so not only might we be una, in an unaware way hosting angels, Jesus says what we do unto the least of these, it's as if we're doing it unto him. And as you look at that unique language at the end there of verse 2 about, about angels, uh, my mind is automatically drawn back to Genesis 18 and this, this picture where, where, where Abraham is visited by these angels and they end up in Sodom and he's not even aware that he's, that he's hosting angels. And I was having a conversation on the phone this morning with a friend of mine, a, a retired pastor, and we were just talking about this, the unique end of chapter two. And I'm just wondering, like, when I, when I stand before Jesus and, and he allows me to kind of look back over my life, is there going to be a day when he says, do you remember that day, March 11th, 2017, when there was that guy on the side of the road, yada, 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 that was an angel. You're unaware of it at the time, because that, that's, 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 that's what this text alludes to. But the call here is, is a call for hospitality. And so the second manifestation of true faith is, is true living that has love for the stranger, both strangers to the faith and strangers to our family. A couple years ago, we did a sermon series here called Giving the Greatest Gift, and we tried to provide a framework for how it is that we, as, as followers of Jesus, how it is that we might live an evangelistic lifestyle, how we might meaningfully and purposefully engage the world around us. And we talked about how God, we asked God to give us eyes to see the stranger as neighbor, 
to see the neighbor as friend, and to lead the friend into the family of God. We saw that as a strategy. So how do we, how do we view the stranger in our midst? Do we ask God to give us eyes to encounter and to see the stranger in our midst that we may show hospitality to them? And, and we, if you remember, we talked about just beginning with a posture of prayer, asking God to move in the hearts and minds of the, our neighbors and friends who don't know Jesus, those strangers to us today, that God would set up divine appointments that we might get to know them and get to know their names and that we might actually even strategically leverage our networks already. If my kids are in school or at work or wherever I might, if I go to the park, that with our eyes lifted up, looking for the stranger in, amongst us. As men and women with the truth of the gospel in our hearts, the life-saving message of Jesus, that we would go into the world looking for opportunities to see the stranger as neighbor. And Jesus said we're to love the neighbor as ourself. And so we talked about just praying, having a posture of prayer, and then learning our neighborhood. We gave you guys a map, if you remember. We encourage you to map your neighborhood. As creepy as that sounds, draw houses and the names of people who live in your neighborhood that you can pray specifically for them and look for opportunities to, to really get to know them. And then we asked, asked you to consecrate your kitchen table, if you remember. Uh, we, we said the most underutilized resource in the Christian church is, is, is the kitchen table. What a great place for us to show hospitality, to welcome neighbors and into our home, to, to see the stranger become friend. What a beautiful opportunity. And, and then we, we, we talked about what it would look like for us as followers of Jesus once we have seen this, this stranger become neighbor and friend to, to how it is we can lead them to Jesus Christ. And so this is, the, this is the encouragement here to see stranger as neighbor, neighbor as friend, and friend as a family of God to show hospitality. I can remember... Many years ago, when I went on my very first real cross-cultural missions trip, I was like 26, 27, 28 years old, and I was going to Algeria. And there was an unreached people group in western Sahara Desert, in the, in the western part of Algeria, right where Mauritania and Morocco sort of meet. And there was an old country there that was, was invaded in 1976 called Western Sahara. And there was about 200,000 people in Western Sahara who fled into the Sahara Desert. And they set up refugee camps like 45... 46 years ago. And then we were going as a church to these refugee camps in the middle of the Sahara Desert. No running water, really no electricity, in the most harsh climate in the world, mud huts and tents. And we were going there to teach English. It was a 100% unreached people group, the Saharawi people. We were going there just get, developing those inroads to, to maybe bring the gospel one day to these beautiful people. And I'd never, and this was right after 9 11, this is like 2003. And my only understanding of, of Islamic countries or Islamic people was what I saw based on 9-11 coverage and what I saw on the news. And I, didn't, I had no relationships with any Muslims at all. And so I ended up being, we fly across the world, we end up in Algiers and then in Tindouf in the middle of the night. And we get picked up in these, like, these sand buggy sort of Jeep looking vehicles. And it's dark. It's in the middle of the night, in the middle of the Sahara Desert. I'm this nerdy American, don't speak a lick of Arabic. I don't know what I'm doing there. I've got a Bible in my backpack, knowing that that's probably not the smartest thing. And we get driving across. We go like an hour and a half. We leave the airport in Tindouf, which is a military base. And we're driving across the Sahara Desert. And we have to go through all these military checkpoints. And there's these guys with guns and military fatigues. And they're screaming Arabic. And I'm just, in, I know I'm going to prison. And I've got this Bible, and I feel like there's like a neon light on the Bible in my backpack, and I know my life is going to come to an end. And then there's four refugee camps, and I'd never been there before. And we get in the middle of this little camp named after a city in the homeland called Samara. I go to this refugee camp that they've named Samara. It has about 50,000 people that live in it. And me and one other person who'd never been to Africa before either, neither one of us lick, uh, speak a lick of, of Arabic, they drop us off under the one street light in the whole entire refugee camp, 
in the middle of the Sahara Desert, sand as far as you can see, and they leave us. And it's like three in the morning. And they're like, someone's going to come get you. Who? <laughs> and so they end up this, pretty soon this, this family emerges from the dark, and they walk us through this refugee camp in the middle of the night, and there's these metal gates and these, these mud brick walls. And I, I just, I was, I'd never been in Africa before. I, I was, just felt so surreal. And I end up going into this little, this little gate. We knock on this metal gate, and it's just, there's tents everywhere and mud huts. And this, this, this wonderful woman answers the door. Uh, later on, I realized, her, I came to know her and call her friend. Her name is Fatima. And she invites me into her home at three in the morning clearly just woke up and we go into this little mud room where they all gathered and all of a sudden all the kids get roused up and there's about six or eight people sitting in this mud room at three in the morning I'm sitting there we're looking at each other smiling I don't speak their language they don't speak my language we're just smiling at each other and she starts to make me tea and she makes me three rounds of tea that last a couple of hours and we still don't speak each other's language pretty soon I pull out a notebook and we're talking and it was the most wonderful, and I went back to those, and I stayed with those people on three separate occasions. They became dear friends of mine. But I've thought often about that kind of hospitality. To just get out of bed at three in the morning, to walk through the dark, to meet some stranger who doesn't believe in the same God you believe in. It was just, it was just so humbling. I still believe they're lost people, and they need to know Jesus as Lord, but just the, the generosity and the, 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 the kindness and the hospitality they showed me was humbling. It was humbling, and there's such power in hospitality. So the author tells us that the way of the worshiper is to show love to one another, hospitality with a stranger, because true faith leads to true living. And then thirdly, here in verse 3, he says the way of the worshiper uh, is this picture of care for the afflicted. Look at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. And so the one who clings with gratitude to the unshakable kingdom of Christ, the one who, who offers acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe, that person necessarily, because of the vertical nature of his heart orientation or her heart orientation, that person will automatically have concern for the afflicted. Deep concern for the afflicted. And when he talks about remembering the afflicted, he's, or the imprisoned, this is not a passive thing. This, this is a, it's a call to vigilance. It's a call to action. In fact, as you consider those who are behind bars for their faith, he says, be as urgent about their situation as if you or yourself were behind bars for your faith. He says, as you consider those who are mistreated, for their faith, those who are being persecuted, actively persecuted, be as urgent about their situation as if you or your own children were being mistreated. The affliction of the faithful is real. He uses the phrase in the body. Their sufferings are real. It, it, you can't spiritualize away their sufferings. I think sometimes in the Christian life we sort of have this, this trump card. We, in, we interact with an old friend or we see someone on Facebook say, hey, something bad happened, this, that, or the other. And we have this trump card in the Christian church. And I'm not saying it's not even an honest response, but when we see someone suffering, we say, oh, I will be praying for you. Which is a wonderful thing to do. It's a, that's, one of the, that's one of our calls to action is to pray for the afflicted. But sometimes that gives us an excuse to just step away from the suffering, doesn't it? I'll pray for you. But if we're honest... In our hearts, we just really don't want to be troubled with whatever it is that they're going through. But the author here, he, he talks about how th this is happening 
to their bodies. He says at the end of verse 3, since you also are in the body. So there's this, this reminder, like, no, this is real. This affliction these people are going through, in their case, these were people that are being persecuted for their faith. It is a real persecution that really affected the body. And as we were chatting this week in our sermon development, Jeremy was reminding me that prison in these times was, they didn't have like a, they didn't have a mess hall. Like you ate when the ones who cared about you on the outside brought you food. If you, if you didn't have anyone who cared about you, you starved to death behind bars. So you were dependent on those outside of the wall of the doors of the, of the prison to bring you food. And so the author is drawing the audience's attention to, to the afflicted bodies of the faithful. And that means we can't spiritualize away this affliction. We can yeah, absolutely intercede on behalf of the afflicted, but if there are practical ways we can, we can meet the need and care for those who are afflicted, we are to do that. Their suffering was real. I had an old friend and pastor and mentor who used to say to me that, that, that we've we got to be careful as Christians to not be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. And I've never forgotten that phrase. And so then the question just simply becomes, what, what does practical care or concern for the afflicted look like? And and of course, that can look a thousand different ways. But can I just give you three categories to think about how you can care for the afflicted in your life right now? Number one is presence. Inconvenience yourself to sit with them in the ashes of whatever it is they're going through. Be present with them. Don't feel like you need to have answers. But just be present with them. Be willing to give up whatever's on your agenda to sit with a friend who's suffering. The second thing is serve them. If God reveals direct ways you can help them, if it's financial help, if it's helping around the house, if it's helping them understand truths about God in the midst of their suffering, whatever it may be, if God has given you a resource to help them with, help them. And then thirdly is pray. Intercede on behalf of our God who, who never turns his back on our afflictions, but he draws near to us in our sufferings and pray on their behalf to the God who loves them. So, so presence and service and prayer. Three things. Just put those in your back pocket next time you see a friend who's afflicted. And so the third manifestation of a true faith is true living that has love for the afflicted. The author said, uh, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew seven twelve. he said, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Paul said in Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In fact, if you go back in Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews says, is he speaking about how incredible it is that Jesus, our high priest, took on flesh and experienced humanity. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. How amazing, how empathetic of our God to put on flesh, to know exactly what it's like for us when we're going through whatever it is we're going through. He's not a, a distant, impersonal, observing God from across the cosmos. He knows exactly what it is we are walking through and enduring. What an awesome reminder for us as we are called to care for the afflicted. True faith leads to true living. And then the book makes a shift. And he, the author begins to then talk about, so this internal, personal world of the worshiper. He begins to talk about what the Christian thinks and, and, and what views the Christian holds and how the Christian feels about the world around them, what truths the Christian holds on to. And I want to get to that, but first I want to take just an 18-second break because I want to ask our church for prayer. We have a small group, and I've mentioned this two weeks ago, uh, and the leader of the small group is Jacob Cook. 
It's part of heritage. We, we, you know, one of the things we want to continue to fight for at Heritage is that the body is ministering to the body. One of the things that, 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 I, that, I, that, I'm, that I desperately want to cultivate at Heritage is I want to tear down the hierarchical pyramid that we sometimes construct in the church. In fact, I've told you before, one of the things I really don't like about our church culture in America is that people say, where do you go to church? And you'll say, oh, I go to so-and-so's church, and you'll name one of the pastors. It's like, no, <laughs> you go to the church of Christ. It happens to meet at Heritage Christian Fellowship. And I think this idea that there's one guy that we have to sit at the feet of one guy and listen to what he has to say, I, I think that's foolishness. I'm grateful that God has put me in the position to be able to teach. But what, what we're trying to facilitate here much more is, is the body ministering to the body. So back to Jacob Cook and to this small group that has got this vision, this idea of really wanting to facilitate mentorship within the body of Christ. And they've been working with Jeremy to try to figure out how we can utilize our, our, our software and just the culture at Heritage to, to, to line up people that they can connect with those who, who have walked where they are walking so that there can become a ministry of presence, a ministry of mentorship, a ministry of sharing and identifying with one another. So we're still building that out. We hope to have it ready by the fall. Jacob has asked, and Jeremy have asked, we ask our congregation to be praying for every aspect of that vision, that we would figure out the details, but also God would begin to stir in the hearts of our people. Those of you who, who are here today, and I can see many of your faces, and I know many of the stories that many of you have endured, you have beautiful, God-given, hard-won wisdom to share. And if God would begin to, to stir in the hearts of the saints at Heritage who have, who have hard-won wisdom, if they would say, I would, be, I would be honored to sit with a brother or sister in Christ who's trying to figure it out. I'm a couple steps further down the trail. I would be honored in the name of Jesus, in light of the gospel, to do life on life with other people. That's this picture of loving one another, uh, of, of showing hospitality, of caring for the afflicted. We want to facilitate that. So, that's longer than 18 seconds. That is an aside. Just please be praying for that. Okay. So the, the book shifts here. The, 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 the way the author speaks begins to, to look more kind of to the internal, personal world of, of the disciple. And so here's the, the fourth thing I want you to write down. We, we see the, the worshiper's relationship with the world. We see that he calls the audience to have a high view of marriage. That's what we see in chapter 4. So the way of the worshiper is... Is, is this high view of marriage. In other words, the one who clings to the unshakable kingdom of Christ, the one who with gratitude offers acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe, that person will have deep respect for biblical marriage, according to the author. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The author is not really mincing words here. He's speaking very directly and clearly concerning marriage. And as in any cultural context, marriage is always under attack. And the same is true today, but it was also true in the first century. I studied a little bit this week, and, and there were two, within the Christian church, there were two views of marriage that were dishonoring to the biblical vision of marriage that existed at this time. Think of them in terms of sexual abstinence, and sexual indulgence that existed among Christians. The, 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 the sexual abstinence camp was called the, uh, the asceticism, and the, the indulgence view was the libertinism view. And, and in the first century, these ascetics, the conservative abstinence people, they, they considered that virginity was necessary for Christian perfection. 
And they thought that sexual abstinence was of a higher calling, more noble, more godly to deprive yourself or to not engage in sexual relationships within marriage. And so as we know how the church evolved in the second and third centuries, as the monastic movement took root, then chastity became a part of the the vow that certain clergy were taking. And somewhere in there, many begin to hold this view in the church, which which is a dishonor to the biblical vision of marriage. They begin to hold this view that those who chose marriage chose an inferior spirituality. That is not biblical. It's undermining marriage. It's a dishonoring of marriage to hold that view. Well, then the other view is also true. Those who on the other end of the spectrum felt like marriage was too tight of a restriction to contain sexual expression. And so the libertinism movement, they held this opposite view. They saw marriage as sort of irrelevant. And instead, their sexual ethic was one which embraced the pursuit of unbridled sexual fulfillment regardless of marital status. So we see the attacks on marriage even within the church in the first century. Man, we see it today, don't we? We see it culturally, but we also see it within the church. Contempt for marriage continues. The views of the world today around marriage are sad. More in line probably with the libertine camp than the other. The views of marriage today culturally are, are if, we, if we hadn't been desensitized to, to the, the ethic of our society around marriage, it would just be shocking. Marriage can be with whomever or, sadly, whatever someone wants today in our culture. It can be defined however someone chooses to define it. Marriage can be dissolved whenever for any reason. I heard someone say years ago, and I need to think this out more, but it's interesting. Someone said to me years ago, is is, is a lot of the law legislation was taking place to, 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 to strip away the definition of marriage as being between one man and one woman as legislation and Supreme Court decisions were being made that, that undermined that biblical vision of marriage. Someone said to me, you know, for hundreds of years in America, the state and the church had a partnership when it came to marriage. The state said, this is what marriage is. And we as the church could say, yeah, we actually hold to that view. And we'll participate in these legal binding procedures. For us, it's a, it's a, it's a biblical thing. It's a spiritual thing. But we'll, we'll have a partnership with the state when it comes to marriage. Well, nowadays, the state has a view of marriage that is, is horrific. It's abhorrent to the biblical idea of marriage. And so we've got to figure out what we're going to do with that. Again, I've not thought that to its end. But as I said several weeks ago, I think we need to prepare ourselves in the Christian church who want to hold to a biblical view of marriage and sexuality that there will be consequence for holding to that view within our lifetime. For the Christian, for those of us who seek the worshiper's way, marriage is an ordinance of God. We see the first marriage in Genesis chapter 2 as God made Eve from, from the rib of the man and he brought her to the man. He said, oh, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I'll call her woman. And we read that the man shall leave his mother and father and he should hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. We see the biblical vision of marriage, a one flesh union between one man and one woman. Anything outside of that is not marriage. And it's dishonoring to marriage. Jesus adds in Matthew 19, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, together let no man separate. Biblical marriage is this beautiful picture of monogamous covenant relationship. And Jesus honored marriage. Remember his first miracle? It was at a wedding, turning water to wine. But perhaps the most profound way in which we see marriage, biblical marriage honored in Scripture, is the way in which it serves as the primary relationship, the primary metaphor to help us understand God's relationship with 
his church. I thought about this, and I've probably shared this with you in the past. I've done a zillion weddings as a pastor, and, and I always used to think that, you know, like later on when Jesus came, and the New Testament writers were trying to figure out a metaphor that would apply, sort of like I do on Friday nights as I'm trying to think about what's my opening metaphor going to be? Satellites and you know, off-roading, that'll work for the vertical horizontal. I sort of thought that's how the New Testament writers were. When they're trying to, oh, okay, this, this relationship between God and his son and the church, what's, what's a relationship? Not the father-son relationship. Not, oh, the, mar- that, the marriage, marriage relationship works. Let, let's use that. So Ephesians 5, let's use a marriage as, but no. When God ordained the first marriage in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. He knew exactly what relationship he was going to use to be a, a living metaphor for the gospel and for the relationship of Christ and his church. It's been ordained, it's been woven into his design from the very beginning. I read this week that as the author here talks about the marriage being held in honor and, and, and marriage bed being undefiled and, and marriage bed being kept pure, when the author says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, He's speaking about the sexual intercourse. And he's charging his audience. He's saying, keep sexual relations within marriage pure. One author puts it this way. He says, the author, the author is referring in sacrificial terms to marital chastity. Chastity. The bed, the, the sexual relationship, is an altar, so to speak, where a pure offering of a couple's lives is made to each other and to God. And so the idea of marital chastity... In our culture, of course, as we know, it's, it's increasingly countercultural. And yet as the world around us perverts marriage and defiles God's design for sex, Christians are called to be outrageously pure. And I think sometimes in my frustration with the perversion of the world around me, I get so angry, I kind of just want to throw stones. But I'm not sure if throwing stones at the perversions of marriage and sex are as effective at changing the hearts of an unbelieving world as men and women who hold high the biblical view of sexuality and marriage. I think rather than me throwing stones on social media to people who have a different view of sexuality and marriage is less effective at softening a hardened heart than when that unbelieving person, that same unbelieving person, looks at the relationship I have with my wife. And they say, oh my God, that is beautiful. I want that kind of love. I was at camp last week or two weeks ago with high school kids, and there was this young lady who got up on the stage it was response night, and she got up on the stage at our response night, uh, the last night of camp, and she's like, I'm not a Christian, which is kind of shocking at a Christian camp. And she's like, but I'm here to give testimony to what I desire. I'm putting words in her mouth, but this is essentially what she said. She's like, I see the beauty that exists within Christian community and the Christian family, and I so deeply want that. And I thought, what an apologetic That young lady, what turned her heart wasn't all the messages that she heard at chapel. It wasn't her cabin times. It was her observing biblical community and saying, oh, I want to experience that kind of love. So men and women in our church who are married, I know many of you view it this way, but let me just continue to encourage you this. Your marriage is a ministry. Your marriage is a ministry, and you have a decision to make. How many breaths am I going to waste speaking against the broken ethic of the world? And there's a time and a place for that. Or how many breaths am I going to take loving and serving and caring for my spouse, yielding to the biblical design for marriage so that an unbelieving world might see the beauty of the gospel lived out in the marriage relationship. Let me just challenge you with that. So we see here the way of the worshiper. The worshiper, they, they love one another. They, they, they show hospitality with the stranger. They care for the afflicted. They, they have a high view of marriage. True faith 
leads to, to, to true living. The fifth thing we see here is in verses 5 and 6, we see the way of the worshiper. We see that there's satisfaction in his or her heart with God's provision. There is satisfaction with what God has provided. There's a contentment in the provision of God in their life. Look at what it says in verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So the one who clings with gratitude to the kingdom of Christ that cannot be shaken, the one who offers acceptable worship to God, that person will be satisfied with God's gracious provision in their life, whatever it is. The author goes all the way back in chapter 10, verse 34. He kind of tips the hat that these people maybe even have had some of their possessions taken because of their faith. Chapter 10, verse 34, he says to the audience, you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So it's likely that these Christians he's writing to have had their stuff stolen. And they're struggling like, man, I have my, my, my property stolen, my money stolen, my things have been taken from me. It's, it's, it's possible they were really struggling, maybe even under the backbreaking pressure of real poverty. But the author is writing to them to say, no, 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 be, be, don't, be, be free of the love of money. It, it's, it corrupts the heart. You, you cannot have two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. So be, be content with what God has given you. Even if evil people have taken your things with evil intent, be content. And then I think about what was in chapter 11. As you read through chapter 11, which is this chapter that the author talks about all these Old Testament saints who modeled uh, like a persevering faith. Over and over again, throughout chapter 11, the author added these little nuggets that lifted the, the chin of the reader up so they could see the, the grand prize at the end of the journey. He says things like, God rewards those who seek him. He says things like, look forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He says things like, that God is, is greeting you with his promises from afar. He says that there's a better country, a heavenly one that awaits the faithful. He says that Abraham considered the reproach of Christ, uh, or rather Moses considered the reproach of Christ of greater worth than the treasures of this world, looking to the reward. He said that God has provided something better for us. In other words, he's saying, listen, I, there, there, there are seasons in our life when we have plenty. There are seasons in our life when we're in poverty. That's going to ebb and flow. No matter what the circumstances are of your life, with this vertical orientation, you will know that you know that you know that God is enough. He's enough. And so I think about that. Okay, so then in my life, when I struggle with satisfaction or contentment, what's behind that? When I feel antsy or frustrated, what is behind that lack of contentment in my life? Well, I think it's believing that what I have is not enough. And so I fight and I quarrel and I scheme to get what I want, as James says. But what's enough? If, if I'm looking for the, the cravings of my soul to be satisfied with material position, what's enough? When will I finally be there? How many times in your life have you said to yourself, oh, if I just had that car, then I'd be happy? Nine months later, the car is dirty and you want the next car. I mean, that's all of us. I'm not judging you. It's like, dude, I, yes, amen. I, I want a new backpack. My backpack's fine, but I want a cooler one. You know, it's like it just never stops. I always want something else. John D. Rockefeller, who at, the, at one time was the richest man on the planet, he was like, you know, Zuckerberg and, and uh, Bezos and Musk all in one. He was asked at one point, how much money is enough? 
at the height of his, of his wealth. You know what he said? Just a little bit more. Isn't that the human heart? So what does the Christian then have? What do we have that is enough? Well, we have a Savior who has said to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. All those material things you seek to wrap your hands around, moths will eat them up, rust will corrode it, thieves will steal it. But those who belong to God, those who have this vertical orientation, those who live, have a living faith, they can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. He's all I need. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Take my stuff. I don't care. I have a heavenly kingdom that awaits me with treasures forevermore. Chapter after chapter of Hebrews has helped us to see the utter and the complete sufficiency of Jesus. He truly is greater, truer, and better than anything we could ever cling to. He is the answer. I one time heard someone give her testimony by the waters of baptism, and she said, I didn't realize God was all I needed until God was all I had. Amen. And so the fifth manifestation of true faith is true living that is fully satisfied in God's provision. True faith leads to true living. Finally, the last thing, the way of the worshiper. We see here a call to steadfastness of faith. Verses 7, 8, and 9, we see a call to steadfastness of faith, cling with gratitude, the one who clings with gratitude to the unshakable kingdom of Christ, the one who offers acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe, that person will be steadfast in their faith. They will cling to Jesus because they know the worth of Jesus. Nothing will pry them from that. And that picture of steadfastness isn't clinging on and barely hanging on. It's a picture of thriving in the midst of opposition. Steadfastness is thriving when everything around you is saying, let go, you say, never. Do you know the possession of the one who calls me his own? I'm never letting go of him, and he's never letting go of me. And so the author calls the audience to remember their leaders who spoke to you, and the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith in verse 7. These people were lucky enough to have faithful saints who administered to them. And he tells them, remember their faithfulness. Remember their steadfastness. Remember the message they preached. Consider the spiritual fruit that their lives bore and imitate them. Imitate their steadfastness of faith. You know, I've, I've said this a zillion times, but in my experience in life, the people who I most want to emulate in the faith aren't the kinds of people that write books. They're the kinds of people that just want to love and be Jesus to those around them. I think if we always look to authors and speakers and figures and influencers as our spiritual models, we're just setting ourselves up for disappointment. I guarantee you there are faithful men and women in your life right now who are never going to write a book, they're never going to possess a huge pulpit, but they have modeled faithfulness in a beautiful, beautiful way. Look to them and their way of life. Hold on to that. And ultimately, he says in verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is on heaven's throne. He is unchanging. He is the trustworthy son of God. He is our trustworthy high priest. He was trustworthy yesterday. He is trustworthy today. And he'll be trustworthy for all of eternity. And just as those faithful leaders put their trust in this eternally unchanging Savior, the author calls his audience to trust him as well. This is a call to steadfastness of faith. Verse 9, he says, hold on to sound doctrine. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. And they never stop. 
They'll never stop. The enemy's never going to stop throwing diverse and strange teachings into the Christian communities to try to confuse us, pervert us, get us off track. And you know you've heard the analogy a thousand times, but you know how they train bank tellers to, to tell the difference between a real $100 bill and a counterfeit $100 bill? They don't study the counterfeit. They hold on to the real thing. And when you handle the real thing enough, when someone puts a counterfeit in your hand, you know it immediately. So how do we guard our hearts against diverse and strange teachings? We, we cling to Jesus. We put ourselves in a church community that holds to right doctrine and gospel proclamation where there's accountability so we don't get led away by these diverse and strange teachings that are constantly trying to infiltrate the church. It's a call to steadfastness of faith. In verse 9, he tells us to reject legalism. He's beginning an argument about food. We'll get into that next week. But ultimately what he's saying is it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not foods. Insert legalism, not legalism. Which, which has not benefited those devoted to them. The author is, is positioning false doctrines and legalism here against grace. Legalism is an inward-focused religion where we seek to be our own Savior, but we're called to here is a Christ-focused faith where we cling to the one who saved us and we, we, we bask in his grace for us. Adherence to man-centered legalism does not benefit the worshiper. I love what Kent Hughes writes in his commentary. He says, Those who imagined that spiritual growth came through a special menu had not only become ignorant of the necessity of grace for growth, but they actually blocked strengthening grace by their proud little rules. I love that. God-focused worship is a source of grace. It is by grace that my heart and your heart is strengthened. And worship, this vertical orientation, this faithful, true faith, it is a conduit that opens up our hearts and minds to the, strengthening, to the strengthening power of divine grace. And so the sixth and final manifestation of true faith is true living that remains steadfast in the faith. Okay, man, I'm sorry I've gone long today, folks. I want to, it's a lot of verses to go through, but listen, I, I, I want to just caution you before I close to seeing these six points on your outline as a checklist to be done in your own strength. Again, it, the one who worships and who is strengthened by a living faith will then be given the ability to experience this true living that God in and through them. When we are fully satisfied in him, we can love in a horizontal way. When the vertical life is in line, the horizontal life takes shape. I can't tell you how many times in my life as a pastor, people have come to me and say, I'm not a Christian, but could you counsel me on this, that, or the other? I'm like, you know, Yes, is the Bible practical? Absolutely. There's some practical application to the Bible, but it's not the rule book of life. It's, it, it gives us a picture of the living word Jesus, and, and it's, it's a means by which our worship is informed. I can, I can give you some practical advice on how to make your marriage better, sure. And it might even be, have chapter and verse. But, but that is a wrong application of truth. We are to be worshipers first, and then God aligns the rest of our lives. And I... And I and I was, I was mindful, and I was talking to my wife yesterday. We went for a walk, and we were talking about this text, and I was talking about preaching, and how are you going to close it? And she says, what are you going to say to the unbeliever? Paul, if there's someone in the church who doesn't know Jesus, what, what are you going to say to them tomorrow? And, and, I, and I said, you know, I, I think I just want to uphold the heart of Jesus to them. You know, I just mentioned what worship is and what it's not for the last 45 minutes, and, and, I'm, and I was, I'm drawn to this one scene in the Gospel of John. Let me just finish with this. John chapter 5. 
John chapter 5, if you want to turn there, verses 1 through 17, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to tell you the story. It, it, it's a Sabbath, so it's a Saturday. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the day of worship where the, the religious people are all doing nothing. They're, they're resting, trying to be obedient to the law, living out you know, legalism in a way that, that is more them-focused than God-focused. And, and, and the author of John, John the Apostle, tells us this is also a feast of the Jews. Doesn't tell us what the feast is. A lot of scholars think it's like maybe the Festival of Tabernacles or something or the Feast of Booths. But it's a religious holiday and it's a Sabbath in Jerusalem. And so where do you suppose all the religious people are? They are either at Temple Mount or they're doing their religious thing on that holy holiday, doing the thing that they think they're supposed to do. Where is Jesus in John chapter 5 during the religious holiday and during a Sabbath? Well, he's at a place called the Pool of Bethesda. Bethesda means house of mercy. And this Bethesda, it was a place where it was believed by the locals that every now and again an angel of the Lord would come down from heaven and would stir up the waters of that pool. And the waters would begin to bubble. And if you got in the water when it was bubbling, you might receive divine healing. And so the people of Jerusalem who had been forgotten by their families, who had run out of medical answers, who had no more financial resources, who had no other options, the most forgotten the most broken, the, the most afflicted, the farthest stranger, uh, those who were most desperate for love, guess where they hung out if they, were in, if they were living in Jerusalem? They hung out on the porches around the pool of Bethesda, forgotten. In fact, there was a guy who'd been hanging out at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem on that day. It's a holy holiday. All the religious people are at Temple Mount or doing their religious practice. Jesus, the son of the living God, God in the flesh, on that day, he's where the most hurting people are, the strangers and the afflicted who need love. And he walks up to the man, and you know the story. He heals the man in a beautiful, beautiful way, and it's awesome. I think in that picture, we see the heart of Jesus. We, we see the vertical heart of Jesus that was connected to the Father. In fact, in verse 17, Jesus answers them, my Father is working until now, and I am working. And we see the heart of Jesus like to, 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 to he was perfectly vertically connected with the Father, and we see the horizontal way he loves the least of these in his midst. And it's just a beautiful picture of what a true faith and how it leads to true living. Let me pray for, for, for communion. Father, we, we prepare our hearts for communion. God, I, I'm grateful for this text, and, and, and God, I'm grateful that we have a few minutes to, here to, to break bread even as, as a body. And God, as we prepare our hearts to, to, to take communion over the next few minutes, God, I just pray that you would, um, God, I pray that you would uh, continue to, to reveal to each one of us, God, what, what true faith in our life looks like, God, what this vertical relationship with you is to look like. God, I pray that, that our, our, God, that all those things that we bring to you, the, the broken parts, the, the unfulfilled parts, the confused parts, the unsure parts that, that we have as we try to work out our salvation. God, in this moment as we come to you, I pray, God, that, that uh, by your spirit, God, you would reveal yourself to us this morning. And God, as we get ready to break bread, God, I pray that, God, as we, as we look to the table, Lord, that as, as, we, as we think about gathering around this table, God, that we would recognize that there is both a vertical and horizontal nature to this ordinance. You are on heaven's throne, Jesus, and it was your body that was broken for us. It's your blood that was shed for us. You're in heaven's throne. You are worthy of our worship. We can confidently draw near to the throne of grace. So God, with, with hearts that are vertically oriented, God, we, we rise to our feet today in worship and we step toward the table where 
we share a meal with the family of God. And we look at those horizontal relationships in our lives. People who need our love and people whose love we need. People who are strangers who need to find community and home and people who are future friends who we desperately need in our lives. God, there are people who are around the table this morning who are afflicted right now. And God, they need our prayers, they need our presence, they need our service. So God, prepare our hearts and minds for communion right now in this final song. God, I pray that as we approach the table, we do so with reverence and awe. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.